good afternoon. My name is Jim Henson. I uh, teach here at the University of Texas at Austin and direct the Texas Politics Project uh, here and also do uh, with my colleague Darren Shaw the polling for the UT Texas Tribune poll. Um, I want to wish you good afternoon on behalf of the Texas Tribune and the University of Texas at Austin. Um, happy to welcome you to the second annual Texas Tribune Festival which by this time of the day I think you probably know you're at. And to our Law and Order Legislative Preview Panel, so if you, that's not where you wanted to be, you're in the wrong place. Um, and just indicate who our guests are, and I'll introduce them a little more briefly in a moment, but just um, to my immediate right, Senator Jose Rodriguez. Next to him, Representative Marisa Marquez, uh, Senator Joan Huffman, and um, Representative Paul Workman, and they're sitting in different order than in my notes, so I'm having to think <laughs> about this for a second. Uh, before we get started, I want to thank the sponsors of the legislative preview um, events that are featured in each of the six tracks of this uh, festival. Uh, these panels are presented by AT&T and supported by the Texas Construction Association, so we appreciate their support. Um, now, though most of you will be familiar with our guests, I just want to give you a very brief introduction on the kind of relevant dimensions of uh, their resumes here, and then we'll, we'll get started. Um, uh, immediately to my right, again, Senator Jose Rodriguez was um, elected to the Texas Senate in 2010, representing District 29 in El Paso. He is vice chair of the Jurisprudence Committee. Um, next to him is Representative uh, Marisa Marquez in her second term representing District 77 from El Paso, and she sits on the Corrections Committee. Um, next to her is Senator Joan Huffman, who was elected to the Texas Senate in a special election in 2008 and was re-elected to represent District 17 in 2010. She's vice chair of the Criminal Justice Committee. And then on the end, Senator Paul Workman is in his first term representing District 47 in Austin and Travis County and sits on the Corrections Committee. Did I get something wrong? Well, you said senator, but that's okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Representative <laughs> no, it's, I, I'm afraid I'm not empowered to promote anybody. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, we almost we were going to promote uh, uh, senator, uh, Representative Workman to moderator when there weren't enough chairs, uh. but he demurred. Um, so just a little bit of housekeeping. We'd appreciate it. It makes the, the wireless a little easier, and certainly the, with the sound capture better. If you turn your phone off or at least mute it, um, and since this is an Evan Smith-sponsored event, if you are going to... Um, have your phone on, please. You can tweet using the hashtag TribuneFest, which has been pretty good today at different parts of the day. Um, I want to jump in by asking each of our panelists to um, briefly say, you know, in their view, what the legislature accomplished in your domains um, in the, you know, the law and order track um, in the last session. Kind of, a, you know, I, what I have in mind is keep Think of it as we're returning to a, a new season of a TV series, and we need a recap, a very brief recap from last season, but tell us also what you think is really looming and what's coming up. Let's start with you, Senator. Well, when you say in your domain, I'm not in the Criminal Justice Committee, but I am in the Jurisprudence Committee, and in that committee, uh, and so is Senator Huffman for that matter, but uh, I think one of the major changes that we had were a complete overhaul of the uh, probate code, both... Uh, on trust, on wills and estates, uh, and had a lot of issues in all of those that were uh, proposed by a task force set by the State Bar of Texas and that worked on it uh, for a number of, uh, of years and came up with recommendations and those were enacted. Uh, as far as on, on criminal justice, of course, I just tracked what was happening there. I'm a former 
County prosecutor dealing mainly with juvenile prosecution, but also handled some misdemeanors. And uh, I was tracking uh, what was going to happen with the Innocence uh, Commission, for one. Uh, certainly the whole controversy surrounding the Forensic Science Commission. I came into contact with that issue as a member of the Nominations Committee. And as you all know, we had some issues there with uh, Mr. Bradley, who was up for reappointment. And then uh, the other area that uh, has always been of interest uh, to me in the criminal justice arena, in my case in the context of juvenile justice, but I think it applies equally in the adult system, and that is uh, the notion of uh, investing more on prevention, intervention, uh, community-based services, uh, you know, specialty courts like drug courts that I think are effective because I helped set one of those up for juveniles in El Paso, and mental health courts to also deal with uh, people involved in the criminal justice system. So those are the issues that are of interest to me. Very good. Well, thank you. And there's a couple things on that we'll obviously want to follow up on. Representative Marquez. Um, thank you. Having served on the Corrections Committee for two sessions now, I was appointed as um, my, in my first term in 2008 under a Democratic chair, which was Jim McReynolds, and then served under Chairman Madden um, in my second term. And what I saw in those in the past four years has been a real transition from not looking at corrections as only a budgetary item, uh, meaning not only looking at uh, what is it going to cost us this year, uh, is the population increasing, but also looking at policies. Uh, that are beneficial to not only the inmates that are in there, but also the detention officers, everybody that's involved in the system from the beginning to the end. Uh, I think that that has really, really been a conversation that, that I, I, I mean, I can't speak to what happened before 2008, but certainly has been something that has continued throughout these past four years. Talking about policy, and when I talk about policy is some of the key pieces of legislation that we were able to file was allowing uh, inmates access to spiritual and educational materials. Um, also, I know that uh, Sylvester Turner brought in a piece of legislation before our committee of talking about uh, allowing inmates to assimilate um, uh, more efficiently after they're um, released. And that's with driver license, um, basic life skills. And so the, the conversation moved uh, significantly from just looking at how much does this cost us and where can we cut costs and where can we be more efficient was to how, how, what are our policies? How are we treating our inmates? How are we giving them the tools, um, you know, when they are paroled or, pro or probation to be successful and productive citizens? And so I've been, it's been a challenge um, in the two sessions that I have served on corrections, um, but both chairmen have been very open and welcoming to those policies, and we've seen support on both sides of the aisle uh, to start talking about things beyond budgetary items, mental health issues. Another thing that was huge was the, the, the combination of the Texas Juvenile Probation Commission and also TYC. Uh, that, was, that was a hurdle that we were discussing in 2009, and then became um, inevitable in 2011. And so we were a part of that discussion, what parts are important, what we don't, don't want to see fall through the cracks. Um, and our both chairman and also the Senate was very open to those conversations in, in regard, with regard to policy. So overall, the conversation's changing. And so I'm very happy to have served and the privilege to serve on the committees both years. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that you'll be asking us. And so it'll give me time to come up with something. <laughs> right. you, you, you ponder that while Senator... Yes, thank you. Senator? Well, you know, I... 
approach um, criminal justice probably coming from a different direction than a lot of people in the legislature. As a former prosecutor, as a prosecutor for about 15 years and a criminal district judge, you know, my focus a lot of times comes from practical experience. So, and I sat through many trials and saw many victims and, of course, many defendants and many lawyers during those years. So, you know, I approach things a little differently. So when I think back on the last session, I saw that, of course, we always have a challenge of how do we most wisely use the funds that we have to make sure that we keep our community safe, that, that we are ensure that the defendants are um, given all the rights that they deserve and that they have a fair trial, and that, you know, prison does the job that it's supposed to do. And that, that's a challenge last session, and it'll be a challenge this session. So I think back on the last session, I think we sort of fine-tuned, and I think that's what we have to continue to do is look at the laws that we have. I'm not a big proponent of thinking we have to keep making new laws or new penalty ranges or change things up. We just need to make sure that the things that we have are working as they should. One of the things I did last session was to make it a mandatory life without parole upon a, an individual's second conviction for a serious a sexual offense against a child. I think that's a good thing and something that was, you know, widely supported. Um, we also did, we kind of fine-tuned the sexual registration requirements for the Romeo and Juliet, as they call them, sort of sexual offenders, and made some real progress that needed to be made that people were a little worried about making that step. But I think once we talked about it, and, and, uh, and I worked with Senator West very closely on that, and I think we came up with a, a fair solution. So I think that's what we have to do is sit down and sort of balance both sides and come up with some solutions. Now, as we look forward, uh, again, I think money is always going to be an issue, and there's, there's talk about how do we work better at reentry for prisoners as they leave prison, which I think is an important issue that needs to be worked on. We're talking about that in the Sunset Commission where I serve, and, um, and I think we'll try to implement some ways that we have, that we follow an individual when they're first go through the court system where we have like a risk needs assessment of them and somehow have that tool follow them throughout their you know their career in the criminal justice system what we have now is a lot of piecemeal a lot of waste of energy and resources and i think um, we just have to be wise and make sure that we are uh, doing what we need to do for those individuals that need to be locked up forever if necessary um, and those that truly need to be rehabilitated, we need to make sure that the system works for them. Thank you. Representative? Well, um, I, this was my first term, so I spent most of the time trying to find the bathroom. <laughs> and <clears throat> once, I, once I kind of found that out, then uh, I was on corrections, which I knew nothing about. And I confess that, and I still don't know a lot about it, but it was a very interesting committee to be a part of. And um, as Marisa talked about the combination of the Texas Youth Commission and, and the Texas Juvenile Ju Probation Department put together uh, was a massive task and uh, that's still undergoing some, some growing pains and trying to figure out what's going on. So I think that one of the things we'll be watching very closely in the upcoming session is how that's going. We have a new director now, uh, Mike Griffiths. and, and uh, he came from the Dallas Probation, Juvenile Probation Department, and uh, we have great expectations for what he's done. One of the things that, I'm, that I am interested in, there's two, two things I'll mention, uh, and that one is, is the creation, and I've, I've kind of pitched this to a few people about having a, uh, what I, for lack of a better term, a middle school, uh, a 
special unit that houses 17 to 23 year olds, first time offenders, uh, because one of the things we do when we certify youth as an adult, if they're 17, they, they go to Huntsville right off. And that, I think, is a very, it does a great disservice to them, and I don't think it helps the state of Texas. And if we can create this middle campus in here where these people will be put, and there will be special programs to help them kind of learn, uh, hopefully, uh, rehabilitate. But if they're going on to Huntsville to help them be prepared for that next step. And so I'm hoping we can do that. The other thing that I want us to look at this coming session is the this idea of over-criminalization. We have hundreds of statutes, in fact, thousands of statutes, which create misdemeanor offenses and, and that. And, and they're really um, civil-type statutes, and they, they don't really need criminalization attached to them. And I'm, I'm interested in trying to figure out how we can reduce some of that criminalization uh, within our statutes. Can, yeah, can I, I overlook Absolutely. mentioning what I would look to for the next session? And yeah. one of those areas uh, is, uh, uh, which we shouldn't overlook, uh, connected to the, both the civil and the criminal justice system, is uh, adequate funding for civil and indigent defense. And that was uh, one of my biggest disappointments, quite frankly, not being able to pass a bill that I was asked to carry by the uh, several people, uh, including some members of the Supreme Court, uh, to uh, ensure that we had uh, a, a firm footing in our budget for future funding of indigent defense and, and civil justice uh, programs, the legal aid programs. Uh, my biggest disappointment was to encounter um, a view that that's not an area that we can support funding because if you're going to assess any fees or try to impose any increase of any sort, taxes, whatever, uh, we're not doing that this non session. It's a non-starter. Uh, and for me, you know, I'm going to come up on 38 years as a lawyer here next month, October 22nd, to run across that uh, when we talk about uh, uh, being a country where we pride ourselves in access to justice and, and trying to be um, equal with, with every, for everyone, uh, I found that very disconcerting, very troubling, that we would not be able as a body on both sides of the aisle, in both chambers, uh, come up with a solution that worked to ensure that we have adequate funding for those programs. And so it was thankfully uh, Senator Ogden in the House Senate Conference Committee in the waning days of the special session that we were able to find $25 million, about seven and a half of that for, for indigent defense. And, and so I'm hoping that in the next session, uh, I, I'm part of this uh, Equal Access to Justice Committee that is looking for ways of uh, addressing this, that issue in the next session. But I really would, would, would hope that we can, as a body in the legislature, uh, recognize that importance and accord it the importance that it deserves in terms of funding. That's, that's a line item funding for the future and not something we've got to keep coming back and begging the legislature to please allocate some money because this is important. Uh, you've had a few minutes to think now, Representative Marcus. Oh. What do you think? For the future. Yeah. Yeah, the, the future is, you know, uh, certainly uh, there's been a lot of change in the House. Uh, 
And, um, you know, and those that have been partners and have that institutional knowledge is certainly a concern. Um, I know that we discussed earlier also the fact that we haven't had interim hearings um, to kind of, some of address some of the issues that we're seeing in the interim. Unfortunately, many people think, well, um, corrections is, is an issue, of, and that's what goes back to it's not just a budget thing where we, we pass a budget and then they're set for the next biennium. We deal with cases, at least my office does, year-round every year um, on health care issues, access to health care. Uh, families can't contact their loved ones that are incarcerated. Um, in people that are on probation or parole are having trouble finding a job or understanding exactly what their living situation has to be. And so those are things that I wish um, we would have had some committee hearings to, to, to not only get together with our colleagues and say, hey, are you having the same issues in Travis County as, are we, as we are in El Paso County, but what are solutions that we can bring Fourth in the legislature in the next session. So that's that's been something we've had to work within those confines of not having those interim hearings. Now, second of all, um, for the next session, I want to continue my work, of course, in monitoring what's going on between TYC and the Texas Juvenile Probation Commission. Also looking at... Um, mental health issues with regard to juveniles. We're seeing an increase in women also uh, that are offenders and um, their rehabilitation within the system uh, is also going to be a concern. Policies that we need to implement or is there, you know, just kind of understanding what the direction is uh, with special populations. So special populations will be something that I want to look into also monitoring the juvenile and also with the mental health looking at, you know, I know that um, the trend about five, six years ago, we saw an increase in the, the use of psychotropic drugs for Medicaid, for children on Medicaid. Um, and also, I know that it's dropped since then, and, and we've been working with HHSC to talk about those issues. But also seeing how that correlates to those that are, you know, ultimately incarcerated. Is it because they don't have access to medications, and, and, and then they're, they're incarcerated for crimes, um, self-medication? I know that I was just in, in Harris County, and the, the sheriff there, um, Sheriff Garcia, mentioned that it's, it costs four to five times more to medicate um, someone in, in, that's incarcerated than it does to provide them those medications right. outside or some kind of community prevention and diversion programs. So those, those will be things that, of course, we continue to look at and also doing it within the cost confines. You know, we're, we're realistic as well. I mean, we, we want good policy, and we but we understand that it costs, and, and what can we do um, to ultimately keep them out of the prisons if they don't need to be there and if there can be some treatment that that or some diversion plan, plan that can help in, in, within the community before they get there. You know, to varying degrees, all four of you emphasized, um, you, know, a, a, you know, a concern with, you know, public safety, um, you know, making sure that people are incarcerated that need to be incarcerated, sure. but also... Um, you know, being attentive to the way the correction system works, to the integrity of the judicial process. Um, in a time of both fiscal difficulty and in a state which is, you know, frankly notoriously law and order oriented, you know, how do you, how do you accomplish talking to your colleagues that, you know, are either fundamentally focused on fiscal matters or fundamentally focused on, you know, going back to their constituents and being able to be quote unquote tough on crime. crime. You know, how do you, you know, I mean, you, you, given your committees, you have different charges than most of your colleagues. Um, how do you, how do you manage that? Talk a little bit about that if you would. Well, I think that is good. is continues to be a challenge and will be the challenge mm -hmm. this coming session. But I do think that there, that's why I call it a balancing act, but I do think there is a fine line there where you can achieve both. 
I mean, I'm clearly a, a conservative Republican and, and very strong law and order background. But, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative as well. So the challenge is, is to convince um, people that you can be strong on law and order, which I am I'm an unabashedly strong. So I can tell people, look, if we can look down the road, and sometimes, you know, that's always kind of a frustration for me because I'm kind of new to the legislature, is that, you know, sometimes looking down the road, you you're, can't be considered a fiscal conservative because you want to spend a little now to save it Later. As Marisa was talking about the mental health issues, we can save a lot of money if we invest in some community um, treatment with these mental health people suffering from mental health illness. Because, you know, Harris County Jail on any given day, 25% uh, of the folks there are receiving psychotropic medication. Um, it is the largest single mental health provider in the United States, is the Harris County Jail. Well, there's there's something wrong with that. So. Uh, yeah, we can cut costs by diverting some of those mental health patients and treating them earlier. But again, that takes a little bit of investment up front. And sometimes that is hard to sell. Um, I think it's the same thing as we've moved a little bit for early treatment, say, with the nonviolent offenses, some of the drug treatment and so forth. And we're seeing now that it's paying off a little bit and lower uh you know, less people in prison, uh, higher parole rates, and so forth. And so there is a payoff. It's just not always a quick payoff. And I think that is the challenge is to – and I think as long as we, we understand that – and how, from my perspective, that there are individuals out there, there are, there are bad people out there, and they commit horrible, unforgivable acts. And as long – I'm all about – punishing those folks. And our challenge is, is to understand who they are and uh, make sure that we treat them in the way that they need to be treated. And then we pull out those that we can actually treat in a smarter way and save ourselves money uh, in, in the long run. And that's it's a challenge. But it's a, it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of work. And it takes people who understand the system and who um, are committed to making it work. The legislature is... Uh is traditionally short-sighted, and um, we you learn that quickly. Yeah, I did learn that quickly. It was it was written on the wall in the bathroom. He <laughs> uh, found the bathroom. Okay. I'm not going to touch that one. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, and so it, it's it's incumbent upon those of us on a particular committee to to discuss these issues, more long-term issues, with with our colleagues, and it causes us to have to do a better job of of convincing them uh, that that spending money now saves money in the long run. And so that's it, it, it really creates a situation in a committee where you really got to do your homework. You really need to know what you're doing so that when you sit down and you talk to a colleague that's not on the corrections committee or not in criminal jurisprudence, that if we spend some money on um, the counties with mental health treatment, then that's going to ultimately save the state money. And stuff like that we, we have to work on. Yeah, and, uh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. and it was refreshing that, you know, uh, that Senator Huffman says, you know, about the budgetary constraints, but also we're dealing with people. And she said that at the end, you know, and, ult and ultimately we're dealing with persons that have committed a crime. Yes, you know, we, we, we all have public safety at, at the forefront, but at the same time, the families that are affected by these people that are incarcerated is important too. Those are, our, you know, our constituents. Those are our Texans. Those are our family, you know, family members that are outside 
um, that are dealing with an incarcerated person. And sometimes we tend to forget that, that we're dealing with human beings, and we tend to forget their spiritual, mental, and emotional needs, and, and also those of those the extended family members that are outside of the system. Um, so it was, it was really refreshing that Senator Huffman said, look, yeah, we're dealing with people. And, you know, if they need access uh, to health care and if they need access to mental health, you know, that we're willing to work and look at those policies and not just see it as a fiscal, um, you know, uh, priority to make sure that we're, you know, we're managing the, the, our, our jails and, and correctional facilities. And so far, how, how, how difficult have you found that? It's gotten better. It's gotten better. I mean, I think in 2009, it was just kind of like, okay, the sunset was coming up, and do we keep Texas Juvenile and TYC apart because they're serving two different populations? And then ultimately it came in 2011, and we had to. And so we were forced to talk about those types of things. Now we're merging two very important institutions, and we're forced to talk about what's the best way to move forward, and we're talking about children. I mean, there are children in TYC. There are 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds uh, in, in these programs, and eventually they're going to um, be out in our society. And are we giving them the tools? Are we investing in, or are we just putting them in a cell along with, you know, and, and, and not really uh, monitoring their progress or giving them life skills or educating them to where they are at in 18 and they're back in TDCJ? And so we, it's kind of those types of things have forced us to talk about the policies we have in place in TDCJ, TYC, and TJPC. <laughs> yes, I uh, I, you know what? I think Senator Huffman uh, touched on what I consider to be one of the more uh, important policy questions for us in the, in the, in the future and for the, for the voters, for the general public, because there's no question all of us Obviously, our first goal should be to protect the community when it comes to our justice system. And, and uh, I think we all feel that way very strongly. But I, I think you know, over the 17 years that I was a county prosecutor, uh, I always found it very interesting that, you know, we, we have the law and order uh, view of things that we want to, so that we can protect the community and maintain safety. Uh, but at the same time, sort of disconnect that from the fiscal uh, financial considerations of maintaining that law and order system. And what I mean by that is that uh, when I came in in 93, in 95, as you recall, we made some very draconian changes to the Juvenile Justice Code uh, to uh, increase uh, uh, punishment, to just do all kinds of things. We went to, we were in a prison building boom as far as the adult system goes and um, a lot of people with the lock them up and throw away the key yeah. approach to me as, a, as a, a juvenile prosecutor and what I would always talk to people about and still do is well yes we need to maintain safety in the community but as taxpayers our resources are limited and most of you are folks who complain about uh, increasing taxes Yet, we somehow overlook the cost of incarceration, both for juveniles, mm -hmm. detention in the case of juveniles, incarceration in the case of adults, and we're not making wise investments in prevention and intervention programs, in some of these uh, rehabilitation type programs, drug courts, mental health courts. Uh, the judge pointed out, uh, Senator Huffman pointed out about the need to invest more in mental health in order to avoid those 
costs at our jails or, and so that we can divert people. I take it a step further and talk about the early childhood education and why we should not be investing more on early childhood education uh, when you look at the figures as compared to how much it costs to maintain someone incarcerated is just a monumental difference in terms of cost. So this notion that was brought up about, you know, we need to invest now in order to avoid more expensive uh, costs for us down the line, I think is critical for people to appreciate and hopefully gaining that appreciation are willing to support more investment in some of these programs that I think will go a long way as has already been indicated by Senator Huffman in some of these policies that were enacted here recently uh, through the Criminal Justice Committee will go a long way in reducing our prison population, reducing the reoffender population, and hopefully uh, provide uh, better services for rehabilitation. It strikes me that you know, Representative Workman started with the notion that it's really hard to get the legislature to think long term as a particular problem in your domain and it overlaps with the same problem in education. You know, and in some ways, as hard as education is, you know, it's a little easier to talk about education, I think, ultimately, than it is a lot of these issues. Before we go to the Q&A, uh, we started the, the track. This track started this morning with a panel featuring three Texans who had spent many years in, in prison, you know, only subsequently to be exonerated by DNA testing. There was discussion of some legislation last time that didn't succeed. I'm wondering if you think that issue will be revisited uh, this session and in what, and if, if so, in what format? If not, why not? I'm sure it, that was Representative Anchia's legislation, correct? Uh, and he, he's been working on that since, you know, well, since I was in the legislature four years. Um, but it's something that's very important, you know, because we have seen very big cases, uh, not only here in Texas, but uh, nationally, where a person is exonerated by DNA. Our scientific methods have caught up, I mean, you know, and, uh, and also, the, you know, when we're talking about um, antiquated, you know, kind of issues that we didn't think about before, is also um, the issue of technology. We don't talk about technology. I know that um, uh, Representative Workman and I t talked about uh, in, when we were at committee, people started bringing up um, the bullying and kind of where this stuff is starting to escalate on the Internet and Facebook, and, and then it becomes, you know, and those types of things. We're, we need to look at those things and, and have make sure that the legislature is catching up. Um, just just like Anchia has brought forth, is saying, look, now scientific uh, forensic science, he was on that pa panel this morning, where he talked about, you know, uh, we need to relook at these cases, and, and, and if somebody's been incarcerated for 25 years, yes, we were responsible for that in, in, in some form. Um, and also also looking at technology and how that plays a part in some of the policies that we do. I don't think a lot of our laws are caught up uh, with what's out there, and, and, and I speak mostly um, to juvenile issues uh, with regard to the Internet, Facebook, and those types of things, and, and, and how are we being proactive in the legislature and how are we making sure that our codes and laws and statutes incorporate that. The legislature can be short-sighted and, and, and slow. Yes. Um, you know, but, you know, by design. So what do you think, what is, what is the appropriate legislative response to this issue of, of exonerations and innocent senator? Well, I think that we have already started the appropriate responses even last session by, you know, moving forward like with having more um, access on the post-conviction writs to DNA testing and so forth. And I think that, you know, technology itself is taking care of some of the issues as it has 
um, moved forward and advanced and the police are more aware of what's available and, they, and forensic science has developed on its own that some of those errors that occurred in years back are not going to happen again. We've started to clean up the eyewitness ID with the, you know, the standards that are required by the police officers. I don't think I think we're doing what we need to do to address the problem, and I think that the problem will be solved. Um, I think that um, I'm opposed to this concept of an innocence commission. I don't think we need it. I think that, that the prosecutors in Texas are, uh, uh, you know, admirable. They've worked hard. I know they recently released a report, and I know there have been criticism about them, but it actually when you look at the numbers, there had only been six and over four million cases where it looked like possibly that the prosecutor had actually been dishonest or misled uh, someone intentionally, and I don't know if they did even in those cases, but that's what the report suggests. So I think we have to be aware that it's an issue, and I think that we need to tweak the system, which we have worked on doing, and I think we have to be open to looking at the system to what to see what we can do to make it be as transparent and as fair as it possibly can be. But I do not think that we need an innocence commission to look over and grade everyone's papers yet once again. I think that we can handle this um, by being upfront about it. Senator, you mentioned the innocence commission. What do you think? Uh, I feel, the, uh, with all due respect, the, the opposite. Uh, I, I do think we need uh, such a commission. I think that we've had too many cases uh, over the years, I mean, if you look, I mean, I didn't hear the panel this morning, but uh, I think uh, D.A. Watkins has done an admirable job up in Dallas. I mean, on his own, opening up the files, looking at the cases and uncovering, what is it, 38, the last count, I think I, I had heard of uh, people who had uh, been uh, wrongly convicted. So, I, as a, you know, I was a prosecutor for 17 years, the elected county attorney, five terms in El Paso. I was a member of the Texas District and County Attorneys Association. I feel very strongly about ensuring that we do everything we can to avoid an innocent person from getting convicted wrongfully. And if it requires another level of bureaucracy, as some people might view it, with an innocence commission that can review cases and determine whether or not someone uh, who has been determined innocent, uh, was convicted because of misconduct on the part of the prosecutor. As a prosecutor, I always felt like, you know what, you have every right to question whatever decision I made, whether to certify a juvenile to be tried as an adult or not, whether or not we sought the appropriate punishment or not. Uh, that is the role of the system. And I, for one, think that people will have much more faith and confidence in a justice system where everybody is held accountable uh, for our decisions that affect life and death. And I think it's important that those that we look at those pieces. Sorry. Were you going to say something? I was going okay. to, but oh, uh, I'm sorry. Go first. ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, in looking at different pieces of legislation to to clean up, and, and, and Senator Huffman said clean up, and I, you know, I filed legislation last session regarding eyewitnesses and whether or not the death penalty is on the on on the you know uh, consideration if the person is convicted if it's solely based on eyewitness and not any other kind of forensic evidence or 
DNA, and it's just merely that person saying uh, that that person, you know, committed the crime, and then automatically the death penalty is also considered uh, an appropriate punishment. So as far as the pieces, yes, we're looking at those little pieces overall to, to make the system work better for yeah, The research on eyewitness testimony is pretty hair-raising when you really start yes. looking at Right. what they're beginning to look at. Thank you for waiting, Representative. It's okay. I was just going to go on the, the this idea of an innocence commission, and I would be opposed to that as well. I'm not a prosecutor. <laughs> but I suspect now that uh, a prosecutor sits down with his staff, and one of the first questions he's asking now is, what does the DNA say? So I think there's going to be, because he knows that eventually the DNA is going to come up. So I suspect that it's kind of self-correcting, and I just don't think we need to create another level of bureaucracy and the money that goes with that. And I'd like to see it just work itself out. So you think the regular, you know, the appeals process as it stands now in terms of things going backwards is, a, is adequate to sort of catch that? To catch mistakes that might have been made already? I feel, I feel it is, especially with the awareness, as, as Mr. Representative Workman said, I mean, I, I do think people are aware. Now, it's funny that you, the prosecutor would say, you know, there, most cases don't have DNA. That's sort of the fallacy. Well, as I talk to my prosecutor mm -hmm. friends, you know, it's, it's difficult for them because, you know, a lot of the juries will say, well, where's the DNA? And then, you know, a lot of times there isn't. So mm. I think, you know, and sometimes, Marisa, there is only an eyewitness and there is no other evidence. Mm -hmm. and, and there are just some cases where that's what you have. So that's why we go back and we make sure that the eyewitness identification process is done as fairly, keeping up with scientific standards, best evidence. We do it as right as we can, and, and then we present that to the jury and let the jury determine if they're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that, that the person has committed the offense. Um, that's, that's what we have, and that's, you know, we don't, there's no clear answers here, but I think uh, it just takes a commitment on everyone's part to do the best they can and to be upfront and honest, and I think it'll work out. And I understand that sometimes there's only an eyewitness. I'm sure. the, my legislation was specific that the death penalty would not be uh, appropriate if it's only, not that they wouldn't be able to be convicted of the crime, um, but that, and I think that came before my committee. I, I don't I know. So. It, I don't, yeah, yes. There were so, actually about 48 bills that were passed last, which were cleanup bills. Uh, yes. the, uh, Mine didn't make it. And there were, <laughs> but, uh, but there were a lot of things, a lot of them having to do with victims' rights and that sort of thing as well. So. Yeah. I think that's the universal face of my bill didn't make it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I want to ask uh, before we open, uh, one last question before we open up, and we can talk about a lot of different things. But, you know, I'm always interested as I talk to representatives, uh, elected officials, I get to know them, and to folks I know in staff about what constituents pay attention to. How much do you hear about this range of issues from your constituents? Almost zero. Yeah. I hear it a little more, and it may just be because of my background that, that my constituents like to ask me about uh, issues. And they all like to hear that we're being, you know, tough on the bad guys. They do like to hear that. But I do hear more of a discussion about treatment for drug offenses or for the nonviolent offenders. I do hear more of an acceptance and a, and a questioning about maybe that's a direction that we should move. So people, I think it's rising to a level of, of awareness with some people. Mm -hmm. and But they're always, you know, we were talking about how we wisely spend uh, the taxpayers' money. The taxpayers, 
generally, my, my experience, they're, they're pretty okay with you spending money to lock up the bad guys. They're okay with that. They just want to make sure that uh, we're locking up the right ones, and, and otherwise they're fine with it. That, they expect their taxpayers to go, their tax money to go for that, and they're okay with that. I hear more, probably more than the average person, well, only because I sit on corrections. And so generally uh, families, I hear more from the inmate uh, families that are in, not just in my district, but in El Paso County, uh, that are having difficulty understanding uh, what exactly the process is. And of course, I'm not an attorney, but we do the best we can to get them as much information on what what their incarcerated family member has access to, I guess, um, you know, whether or not they're receiving health care that they need, if they're receiving letters, it's more that type of issue. Um, where to go, we, we, of course, we, we refer them uh, to a lot of nonprofit legal centers in El Paso um, to, to give them legal advice on the appeals process, but we hear about it quite a bit. And there's a, a specific unit in the state that we hear a lot about. Um, and we've seen uh, so many cases uh, come in about abuse from, um, from personnel and, and detention officers and, and also uh, denying them uh, access to, to health care or to communicate with their families. It's just one unit that we hear more about. Uh, and we, we were, we're taking, um, I'm actually going to visit the unit. Um, and, and I understand that sometimes when incarcerated uh, individuals find out that there's one uh, representative that is that, 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 that's open to that type of conversation or follows up on these types of issues, the way I see it is if we're not proactive, if we're not vigilant, and we see it come across our desk so many times, there's obviously an issue. And we did our due diligence. We brought it to the attention of those that are in charge at TDCJ said this could be an issue, our families are not able to, and usually it gets resolved. TDCJ has been responsive uh, many times to our requests when it comes from a family member, but there are things that we need to, to look at in this next session that could, that, that could help them out a little bit and also be um, an open line of communication to those that we serve. Out in the so in your case, it's been sounds like it's been more a case of constituent service requests than it has been people calling and trying to just weigh in. Yeah, and, and I think overall in El Paso, and, and the senator can, can add more to this, is that we see a very strong criminal justice ministry, uh, criminal justice advocacy groups, um, you know, that want to work on solutions. Uh, that that may be just my area. That they, they, they want to, they're very policy oriented and say, hey, these bills, these are ideas. So that just might be, you know something specific to our area, but we do see uh, quite an interest in criminal So what justice. do you hear from your constituents? Well, uh, um, I have to say not as much as they do, uh, maybe because I don't serve on the Criminal Justice Committee, uh, even though I'm a former prosecutor. Uh, I don't hear a whole lot from my constituents on criminal justice issues, except in the area of, of um, the role of law enforcement in, uh, in the whole sanctuary cities. Uh, debate and, and whether or not uh, that is something that we need in this state. Uh, maybe because I've done a lot of work in that area as well and uh, people that contact me, it's more about uh, are we in fact going to be facing that again in this next session of the legislature? And what do you think? And, well, I, I, I'm totally opposed to it. I, mean, I, I You know, our sheriff, our chief of police, uh, so are the Others, their counterparts in the other large metropolitan areas, Dallas, Houston, right. San Antonio, they all, they all feel the same way. We worked a lot in El Paso over a number of years to build up community policing. And one of the success stories for us when we talk about being the safest city in the country for its size 
is the cooperation that law enforcement has obtained through community policing techniques from the citizens through the mm -hmm. uh, Crime Stoppers programs, through other programs that we have. And, and so the concern is that if, uh, if you implement something like uh, Arizona or what we were trying to do here through sanctuary cities legislation, that you're not going to get the kind of cooperation. Being on the border, we have a large immigrant right. community. You're not going to get the cooperation from the immigrant community to either report crime um, or to even step for, uh, forward as witnesses of crime. Mm -hmm. And one of my concerns that I had as a person who dealt with uh, family violence and protective orders was uh, spending a lot of time encouraging mainly women to step forward out in the colonias, in the outlying areas of the county, and seek protection from the courts against the violence, and as soon as this whole issue started to crop up, the next thing we know, people are clamming down and right. saying, we're not going to be coming down to the courthouse asking for that right. protective right. order because, and so if you talk to Sheriff Wiles in El Paso, he'll tell you, look, that kind of policy would be detrimental to law enforcement. We, we, we would not be able to have the, the effective policing, community policing that we have if uh, people view us as an extension of the federal government inquiring about immigration status. Right. Uh, I want to ask, I'm going to go to Q&A now, but I do want to, I wanted to ask about that. And so just a real quick show of hands, and I suspect it'll come up again. Do you guys ex all expect to see a sanctuary cities bill again this time? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, last session I filed a bill, by the way, uh, SB 600, in the event sanctuary cities <laughs> was... Uh, enacted, I filed a bill that would carve out an exception for victims or witnesses of crime so that, so that those folks would feel comfortable in stepping forward without being inquired about their immigration status. I mean, if we, if we want that kind of, uh, of community safety that we, that we need, uh, that is a big sector of our community in the border that we got to count on to report suspicious activity or to step forward if they're victims of crime. Well, it's not a, it, he wasn't asked about it, but I, I did think it was interesting last night that the governor didn't raise it. Um, no. Not that that's going to be, you know, determinative of anything, but it was interesting. Well, thank you very much. We want to open it up for questions. We have about 10 minutes, maybe eight, nine, 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. So please, uh, yeah, please be orderly in the line. We don't want to call the security in to reintroduce order. Uh, my question uh, is related to the elected as opposed to the appointed judiciary here in Texas. I believe it's one of seven states that uh, elects its judges. Um, and while I'm sure the vast, vast majority of judges are you know, good and honest people, um, the fact that judges are elected, and I believe in, in most, if not all cases, under a partisan party label, um, it seems as though it could create potentially uh, the appearance uh, of conflict of interest. So I'm curious for each of you, uh, what's your position on an elected as opposed to an appointed judiciary and whether or not this is even on the radar of the 83rd? Uh, so should we keep electing judges in Texas or not? Mm -hmm. I think well, Senator Hutchinson. Yes. Well, judge. I think what that keeps coming up, it came up last session. I think prop, someone probably has a bill on it every session. Um, I'm opposed to appointing judges. I, I understand the problems with the elective system, especially on a partisan um, sides. However, I believe that it, 
I would never have been a judge if it would have been an appointee. I wasn't in the, the inside circle of any uh, political powers. I did it the hard way and just sort of mm -hmm. pulled myself up, and I became a judge and later a senator. And I think that, that we need opportunities for folks to be able to do that. And if we go to an appointment system, I think we all know that it becomes a who you know politically. That's how you get an appointment. I don't think we want our judges to be all coming from that type of situation. That's my personal opinion. I'm with the judge. Yes. Okay. <laughs> hey. I, I support that I, I position. See, I, yes, I see both sides. You know, most people are saying when they're, they're advocating for appointees, are they qualified? Do you know what I mean? And, and not, uh, are they the most qualified? Do they have the background for that particular court? That's, those were advocates for the appointee part, portion. Uh, but you're, she's, you know, absolutely. Senator Huffman's right. You know, I, I didn't have any support running for my, for my seat. I just said, hey, I want to make a difference and I want to go out there and it's going to be hard and, and I should be afforded that opportunity just like anybody else should. Uh, so, and go out there and explain. And that's, that's the other thing that sometimes is it, what's very important to being in elected office is that you have earned the opportunity to go out and communicate your votes and your positions to your, to your constituency. And that's in a very important part of elected, uh, being in elected office, that you have been afforded that opportunity and it's a very important part to the, uh, to the democratic process. Judges, elect them. Next question. You go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, uh, I, I've struggled with that for some time because uh, judges, one, they have a hard time getting their message out. Nobody pays any attention to the judicial elections. They're down ballot. A lot of times the electorate doesn't even get to the judges. Mm -hmm. And so we wind up electing somebody perhaps that has a cute name or is... <laughs> It maybe has had some exposure in the in the newspaper or something, so I I see the the problem and then of course they have to go and raise money to run and where they're going to raise it they're going to raise it from the lawyers who will ultimately appear before them so there is this appearance of conflict of interest. Uh, on the other hand, this idea of being appointed by some greater power is. It is problematic as well. So I, I've just struggled with it, and my constituency says, no, we're going to continue to elect them. I'll say that. Yeah, there's still yeah. a real commitment, I think, yes. for the most part in Texas to this populist yeah. model of electing everybody you can, really. Yeah. You, you know, in El Paso County, we are seeing more and more contested judicial elections, which yeah. I think is a good thing. Yeah. In fact, I used to get in trouble in the courthouse encouraging people to run for judicial positions because yeah. the judges for years and years would go unopposed. Right. And I would yeah. say, you know what, we all have to be held accountable. Uh, more and more, right now, in this election cycle, we've got, for the first time, we've got Court of Appeals contested races, we've got District Court contested races, uh, and, uh, and other races that I think is healthy for the system. And that's one way uh, for accountability and for addressing some of the concerns that some folks have about the election of, of, uh, of judges. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm a nurse over at Travis County Jail, where I've been for over 25 years. And uh, before that, I was working at Austin State Hospital back in the 70s. My one of my many concerns about the criminal justice system is the mental health problems that we have. We have these people, large number of people with major uh, mental health problems, schizophrenia, bipolar, etc., who are just in and out, in and out, in and out. And I understand at the county level, we have to probably take care of those problems, you know, 
But the ones who go out to uh, TDC and then are released and they come back on the streets, they're back in again, you know, the next week. Uh, is there any thought in the future about getting some of these people into a program as they leave the uh, prison system and require them to re have mental health treatment? Because many of these people are never going to get well unless, well, they're never going to get well, but they function far better if they're receiving treatment. Thank you. So ultimately, the, the role of, you know, the, the problem of people with mental, mental health problems in the penal system, what is our legislative I, kind of I remedy? I think that continues to be our problem with we've been weak in, re, in our reentry and what, what we're doing with these folks as they leave the prison and what the plans are and where they're going. Um, and so I think we're struggling with that. But I do think there's at least discussion now to move forward and start, you know, and as I said, if we had a risk and needs assessment, we knew who these people are and what they needed early on, it would make sense to sort of help them as they leave, you know, leave the door of the prison to go into mental health programs or, or the community programs. The problem is, I think a lot of these communities, there is no community program for them to actually go to. And so, um, and as we know with these individuals, you're the nurse, but once they stop taking, they don't really necessarily like to take the medication because they don't like the effects of the medication. And when there's not someone there handing it to them when they're supposed to take it, then they get off of it yeah. quickly, and then the symptoms come back what, within 48 hours or something. So that's it's a, it's a problem. I don't know if there's an answer, but at least, at least there's an awareness that there's a problem and there's discussion about reentry. I believe also that we should spend, you know, just as many resources as we do in prevention and education as we do in reentry. Uh, you know, the other thing too is that we're dealing with individuals and, and many times the county mental health authority has said we offer to give them uh, a patient um, their medications and they can refuse um, to take them. And, you know, at that level, that's the challenge. They said we cannot force them, you know, when they're incarcerated, yes, we can get a judge's order and mandate that they take them, but um, the other thing is how, how are we giving them those coping skills, life skills to say, okay, I'm going to have an onset, um, I need to take my medication, or I need to go somewhere or find a place where I can get my medications rather than just going into the ER in a crisis situation. So, you know, we, I think we need to be more vigilant this next session uh, about those opportunities and, and, and uh, capitalize on them, any kind of aftercare uh, that has long-term uh, successes is important. It's going to be important to our discussion. My, my view on that, on that issue is, and, and I'm going to say it, is that we need much more investment in the mental health system. Uh, the gentleman mentioned about uh, when they are coming out of the jail and can we get them services. My experience is that we have a lot of people in jail that don't belong there. We don't have the diversion programs. We don't have the personnel we don't have the investment in a mental health system in this state that would appropriately provide services to those individuals that can't get access to those services except in, in the jail context or even in the juvenile justice system where juveniles, one time I heard this parent testifying that uh, she had to take her son over to the juvenile detention center uh, claiming that he had committed some offense the mother to get him medicate to get him the medication at the 
juvenile detention center there in El Paso because she couldn't get it otherwise. She and the, yeah, and the upfront investment for infrastructure in that is significant, and you have to convince people of that. I think. Okay, one more question. I'm sorry. We please. Hi, my name is Carly Rose. I'm from We Texans, and I was listening to some budget board request meetings and. There were a couple agencies that were requesting funds for new computers because their current computers are out of warranty. And I heard some courts uh, requesting funds um, just to deal with the work that they have. And, you know, I haven't investigated it, but it seems that certain agencies don't need a new computer just because it's out of warranty. Meanwhile, you know, I visited a prison system recently and they're running computers on DOS. They couldn't even find the prisoner I was there to visit because the database wasn't fast enough. It was, it was absurd. So I would hope that you don't even have to raise taxes or fees to consider that when you guys are voting on the budget, really looking at what people are asking for and, and you know, making sure that the priorities are aligned when you're funding things. And I know you do anyway, but I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Or making sure that agencies are good stewards. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess that wasn't a question, really, but I think we're out of time. Thank you, though. Uh, <laughs> she wanted yeah. her question. I'm afraid we're out of time. Please thank, oh, thank our panelists very much and come up maybe you can ask them. Thank you all for coming.